spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. This is an audio novella, Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. This is chapter three. Please start at the beginning, chapter one. This audio novella contains explicit content and is not suitable to listen to while children are around. Chapter 3 My lover, Sam, a man of the earth, he has a scent that some other men have wondered if they could find the cologne, but really it is a lifestyle. Time spent with honey and wax, time spent merging with the meadows. He brings a box of poetry books when he travels. He can hunt and uses every single part of the animal that he kills, carries elk over his shoulders. He feeds the forest back with offerings. I love him freely, and I can't see myself with him forever. This is something that I know from the beginning. I think he needs a woman with more natural and primitive skills, a woman closer to the earth than me. I never speak this out loud. And he loves me freely because he loves freely. We love without pinning one another to roles. He had an austerity to him and a clarity of boundaries that was at once healing for me and a great teaching for me. In retrospect, I can see the ways I hid behind the distance between us, the ways that allowed us to not get enmeshed. A lot of love and a lot of space. We were on the road because he was selling medicines, potions. We began in Los Angeles in a mansion, a woman with long straight black hair and a perfected Los Angeles look with photographs of her wedding in the house. She grew up in my hometown and she looks like she was popular, now an occultist. This was fascinating to me. I saw one of Sam's friends in the kitchen and in conversation ended up telling him about the panther dream I had. His immediate and natural response was to offer me a drop of spagyric of mountain lion so that my cycle of being consumed by large cats and consuming large cats could continue. It would not be true to say that consuming a drop of essence of mountain lion didn't startle me as much as it was also not an invitation that I'd wish to decline. The mountain lion must have reached into my dreams later. I dreamt of a scene where I wore very specific purple robes, and Aiden saw the same purple robes in his dreams when we confirmed dreams in the morning. Aiden remembered the gemstone buttons of the robes exactly as I'd seen them. In the backyard by a pool, I saw a couple, a man hugging a woman from behind as they sat by the edge of the water. The woman had toes painted alternating rose and green, She had a large smile, teeth white as the moon, and her whole body seemed to be receiving the man, as handsome as her, her entire being in effulgent overflow and luxury. 
This woman was so strikingly beautiful, my instinct was to feel threatened, activated, jealous. And yet, she glowed in a way that disarmed me, almost like a beauty spell of let me be the most beautiful woman you have ever beheld, but feel blessed as you perceive me. Then it is Sam, his best friend Charlotte, and I on the road. On the way to Vegas, my mom called me to tell me that my dad was in a coma. This was an escalation of his condition that was not very surprising. I relayed this news to Sam and Charlotte, who received the gravity of it while we all also compartmentalized it, not for lack of caring, but perhaps an abundance of living and overflow of contrast. In Vegas, we never really touched the strip. We arrived first at a house where three older witches lived together. It was again mansion-like. There was a courtyard with a garden full of statues. We had taken mushrooms on the drive up, so the statues of mermaids were animated, fins flapping and catching glints of moonlight across an undulating sea of emerald blades. Again, I found myself surrounded by rare and elite characters, full-time practicing magicians, giant crystals in the corners of the rooms, amethyst geodes spilling out over the tables. In a moment, I found myself alone, Sam and Charlotte each occupied. I found solace in my notebook, tripping, writing. I was writing about Chiron and Leo again when I heard music that ruptured my focus and brought my whole body as though a pointed arrow in motion to follow the music. I chased it down to the source and found a man playing guitar and a stuffed lion on the guitar case. The man's name was Leo. I couldn't contain my extreme joy, my smile like ribbons trying to leave my face, the piercing reflective glow of Leo smiling back at me, overjoyed that I was so enthralled by his music. It feels cumbersome and wholly unnecessary to explain the synchronicity to Leo. Leo doesn't need to know. Leo is just happy to be seen. That night we left the witch's mansion to go look for hot springs away from the city. We walked for a long time, but my body didn't register tiredness yet. We didn't need lights, we could see in the starlight. We were not able to find the springs, however, and we came to a 12-foot drop in the middle of the path. Sam and Charlotte were willing to jump, but I wasn't. I got a flash in my mind of a dream I'd had the week before, of a man emphatically showing me a map with a cliff in the middle of the path, pointing to it with a pen, saying, Try again in the morning. So we camped out to wait for daylight, set up our sleeping bags underneath the stars. Sam and Charlotte began to joke and riff, plenty of Leo placements between the two of them. And suddenly it hits me like a distorter, like a ripple in water, like a reverberating wah 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 My father's gaunt face his struggled breathing, the way he is likely dying. And I look over to Sam and Charlotte laughing and hold this into myself, not wanting to spill out, not feeling it correct, feeling the dissonance and offering it up to the stars to hold it for me. I closed my eyes, seeking to have an inner conversation with my sparkles of light that give me guidance, 
but I can only see geometric shapes, mandalas coming into and out of being. I surrender to them and fall fast asleep. Charlotte found the hot springs the next morning before I'd even woken up and we went to them. Sam picked wild tobacco along the trail. The water was scalding. We reached another destination later that day after crossing miles of desert. We stop at a house surrounded by cacti and dust. The three of us are in the front seat of a pickup truck. I'm in the middle. Charlotte rolled down the window to greet a man who shakes her hand, but when I put my hand out as well, he doesn't notice it at all, never made eye contact with me, and I feel as though to him I don't exist. I saw this man again inside. He was speaking about astrology, airily asserting that tropical astrology isn't real, that it doesn't map the actual astronomy of the sky. But as he goes on, it also becomes clear to me he doesn't know very much, and still he overlooks my existence, and I feel a soft, boiling anger inside of me. The house is full of booths and vendors, and I see the poolside couple from the L.A. mansion. They've traveled, too. The couple whose beauty had overwhelmed me so. Their names, Blaine and Natalia. I spoke to them for some time, about things I don't even remember. Spiritual awakening, perhaps, which Natalia had written a book about. Bright-eyed, relating to me about what it's like for people to think you're crazy, but you actually just are talking to fairies and you know your reality is real. Her kindness disarms me. She is this beauty that I thought unconsciously she would treat me like a peasant. But I see her seeing me and I relax and think into relaxing into an entirely new vista of existence where beauty doesn't have to alarm me, where it can just be normal. Like an angel and without knowing of the man who'd overlooked me earlier, Blaine looks at me and says, you are perceived by the people who are meant to perceive you. Those who couldn't understand you wouldn't even see you. You're like Luna Lovegood. You are striking, but only those who are meant to see you will. In a hotel room later, Sam affirmed that anyone with eyes to see could see how I sparkle, how magical and enchanted I am. I feel the storminess of my life, the ways I move through choppy waters of feeling alone and at odds with the world versus where I find the shore and shelter, when it's raining sideways versus when the sun comes out and dries and warms me. Charlotte was bummed her lover was elsewhere, fully anticipating Sam and I would take advantage of this moment of being together. And we do. We have sex in the shower. He looks fiercely into my eyes and softly behind the apparition of the hot water, there I can feel the whole forest, pan the god, the rivers, the sky. Sam says that he loves me, and I say it back. Sam never just reaches me as himself. He does. But he reaches me as a whole world, whether it's the forest that he lives in service to, or the radical community of witches he has all around him. And the hot water pours down on us, heat, mist, memory. Chapter 4 Back home in Olympia, I reconnected with Aiden. Laying in bed together, he told me he didn't always want to have sex or want that to be an expectation. And I said we didn't have to. I thought even the idea he wanted to hang out without having sex opened my heart. 
because I said we didn't have to. He kissed me and said that now he was turned on, that without the pressure or with the freedom, he wants it. I felt his Libra stellium. He'd been enjoying with me the openness to have slow sex. He felt like his ex just wanted him to be a stud, fast sex that had nothing to do with him. Perhaps the next day, a variation. We were in his bed and he told me carefully with baited wording, I don't want a relationship. He was withdrawn enough, though our bodies were entwined, and I could hide my tears. What do you mean, I ask? Is this about Kat, his ex? I don't want a relationship with her or with you or with anyone. What does being in a relationship mean to you, I ask? Enmeshment, your worlds join, you make decisions with the other in mind, you build a life together, you become a unit. I want us to be friends. I say, I don't want to just be friends. I want the possibility that we are building something. People think friendship is less than, he said, but friendship is foundational to more connection. Wanting to be friends is not a way to write you off. I want to be friends because I like you and care about you. My thoughts returned to my dying father, and something like a survival instinct kicked in. I wanted Aiden. I wanted a full union, a real relationship, and I couldn't stand the thought of losing him. I felt a kind of nauseousness rising and stopping at my throat, inner channels of water rising and stopping at my throat. I thought of his flightiness and how I somehow got him to come over for our first date. I thought of our psychic connection and the way we shared the same dreams. I thought of how, when not an expectation, he wanted sex with me all the time. How I came over to his house when he was usually naked, fresh out of the shower. How many times a day does he shower? How many times a day was he working out? No words needed. His smile, his full-bodied expression and sounding of satisfaction, him massaging me, bringing my body into a serpentine yes that could bypass any of my mind or heart's hesitations, his scent, our sensuality, the depth of it. Wherever he was at in terms of admitting to it, or standing at the threshold versus crossing the bridge, our connection was real and I felt I had to risk everything to defend it to softly, without even letting him know I was doing this, trust he would come around to choosing me fully, to trust that he was in love with me and was falling more deeply in love with me, because it was evident, and I would anchor myself there. A few nights later, I went to a kundalini yoga class and could not stop thinking of my dad. Even while doing the repetitive motions and bringing energy up through my spine, Movements which usually moved and cleared energy and brought me to ecstatic states of no mind, of moving through color wormholes. Thoughts of my dad hung around me like bells ringing, like sand blowing away an unshakable slab of cement with the order written on it, you have to help him cross over. You have to help him cross over. He's been fighting for seven years with basically no discussion of death. Even when his white blood cells were dropping, he had confided in me that he took my mystical advice to heart, that he imagined stepping into an elevator, where each level up he went, his white blood cell count rose, and how this visualization actually manifested in his test results. 
No one ever talked to him about death, and he never talked about it. And here he was in a coma, his organs were failing, and I just felt his soul dangling there. I drove home, seeing angel numbers on license plates everywhere, and I called my mom to tell her we had to tell him, even in his coma, that he was dying and that it was okay for him to go. But he'll be so sad, she said. But it's the truth, and I'm pretty sure we have to tell him. She took the night to deliberate, but conferred with me in the morning. It was bizarre to me, but my mom received my spiritual leadership in this moment and agreed with me. She invited me to fly back to join her and my brother in saying goodbye, but I declined, having only just gotten home and feeling like more travel would be frying. She and my brother called me from the hospital where we said goodbye to him, and he died a few hours later of lung failure. I called Aiden and my closest friends. Aiden didn't pick up, so I left a voicemail, and I pinged him psychically and prayed to the angels to have him call me back. I began a pattern, there or somewhere, perhaps, I can't remember where it started truly, of going through the angels to get to Aiden whenever he was away from his phone for too long. And it usually worked, though it grew to distress me. Aiden called back a few minutes later, telling me he'd heard my voicemail on the bus and teared up. He came over to spend the night. In the morning, I wrote a Facebook post about my dad's death, a post I later edited into what I said at his funeral. Instinctually, I felt I had to tell the world about it. I had to grieve publicly. For weeks, my house was full of food that people brought me. Some of these people, people I didn't even know very well, or had just met because of my astrology research project. Friends across generations, people younger and people much older, having beautiful conversations, sharing stories, people hearing mine and telling me of their death initiations, a window opening of intimacy. I'd suffered alone many times in life, but this was the first time in my life that a whole community gathered around me like an iron dropping from the sky, dense, exquisitely present and dropped in, undistracted, ruthless. I had wrote, As the time was coming that his leaving was becoming imminent, I was struck with this awareness that my dad was going to be leaving his body and that my dad would no longer be someone I could call on the phone or see when I visited home, but that he would most definitely be here with me in spirit. And because he had never failed to show up here in this life, why would he not continue to show up beyond? And I can say that he is here and that while my dad left so soon, there are some really wonderful gifts he's left behind that I wish to honor. I want to paint a portrait of who he is and who he has been to me, since I have the opportunity to share with you who my father was from the perspective of his only daughter, and many of you know how sweet and gentle my dad was, also excitable and generous and compassionate. I can say that as his daughter, I've been truly blessed. In my early memories of my dad, what sticks out is a serene comfort I always felt. As time went on, there were countless exchanges where I would be speaking whatever was on my mind, and he'd listen with curiosity and appreciation. We enjoyed the same indulgences and simple pleasures, 
so much so that often I would be craving some kind of specific food, and he would call me up and ask if I felt like eating the exact thing I happened to be thinking about because he was about to grab some for us. When I think of him, I also see his excitability, the very spring in his step, the times he surprised me with things I loved just because or because I was feeling sad and he was able to rally me back into a good mood. I know my dad is the person who gave me his sleeping bag when my Disney Minnie Mouse sleeping bag got soaked in the grass, apparently not waterproof, and he shivered through the night while I was able to sleep warm. I think of how smoothly he conducted his world, and by extension of that and his work, our world, our livelihoods as a family. I can see three screens going at once at his desk, phone conferences, an efficient workflow that became a hum in the background of my life for having lived in the house where his office was my whole growing up. My dad's ability to construct a life for us was as naturally embedded into my environment as a tree. He would move about the house with the speed and energy of a hummingbird, thumping up the stairs no less, whistling joyfully, emanating quick, buzzing, intellectual energy. It took me some time to realize how much pride he took in his work since it was a steady part of my life, something that was just a given, yet as time went on, I realized it was far more extraordinary than that, that he was self-made from the ground up and had developed increasingly efficient ways of being, such that the most mundane of tasks became like art forms. His love of aesthetic, beauty, and music surrounded his work and his leisure, I never saw my dad aimless. He was always crafting life, and the results were so very tangible and supportive to his family and the people he helped in his work. In the last few years of my dad's life, he was my number one cheerleader for my business and career path. His encouragement, his belief in my ability to succeed, him graciously bailing me out when I've made mistakes without holding those mistakes against me, but letting them be nothing other than learning opportunities. My dad possessed a wisdom of patience and thoughtful action. The sense of us sharing an experience together without needing words for it makes me feel connected. The way I miss him is in one context, and the way that I feel his presence is another. I think of him when I find myself in moments of becoming like him. Something clicks and is activated. I have an epiphany that brings me in alignment with some memory of him, where before I had just been on the outside cataloging an impression. When you see someone do something however many hundreds or thousands of times, but then one day you're the one doing it. It's the same part of me that knows his opinion on a situation when I'm at a fork in the road. At the same time, I have a reel of memories in my mind of his health declining. I have memories of his vitality that jump out with contending intensity. The kind of health problems that my dad fought through are just a testament to that vitality. My dad's tenacity has inspired me and always will. I am still just getting to know him, as is only fair. It's nice to know that some of my memories of him are just seeds that will one day bloom into further understanding for a man whose ethic was self-evident. By that I mean, he was more likely to just live his values than to explain them, as if it was just a natural thing for him to do. It's been sweet for me to feel an understanding percolate the way that it does. I love our conversations that were like life briefings, his true enjoyment of my good news. So I will still tell him, and for all he has given me and my family, I can honor that by being in the sweetness of my life and doing my best. I have been reflecting on how there is really no reason to not show up for it all, to give life everything you can. 
The last few years of his life, after his own struggles, he had gotten in a habit of sending me inspirational quotes that always really resonated with me. Beyond explicitly telling me he was proud of me and that I was doing a good job, he was sending me these little nods. I don't think we have to do these things we do 100% for ourselves or 100% for others. Sometimes it's blurred. My happiness is my dad's happiness. That's a powerful love and I'm blessed for having that then, now, and always. My mom says I can bring Aiden to the funeral or anyone who'd be supportive for me to have there. I invited Aiden, but a deliberation took several days. Between invite and decision, we were spending a lot of time together. Oftentimes, Aiden was a perfect mirror, holding me with warmth when I cried, laughing with me, feeding me fire and enthusiasm and eros, being excited to see me, touching my body only in the most exquisite way. He amplified a joy hidden inside of me that comes out when someone more extroverted than me invites me to play more. He had dog magic, spending hours in the woods with his dogs, his best friends, and I felt him treating me with a kind of manic excitement that had me panting, had me missing him every time he left the room, a kind of excitement and adoration and warmth and fire that had completely won my heart and my loyalty in a way that there was no turning back. In a more serious moment, he told me, I seem to attract connections with people during this transition. It heals me too because I had an extremely abusive father. Terribly abusive. Somehow I just understand the grief of not having a father, but it opens my heart too to think of fatherly love or to feel how your father loved you. Thanks for listening. I just want to take a moment to share a few things about the process of writing this. Um, the eclipses are coming up in May at the time of me writing and sharing this. So May 2022, there's going to be eclipses on the Taurus Scorpio axis. And both eclipses feature a conjunction to the asteroid Eros, which in my research is about the deepest aliveness eros you know erotic but also grief and last night i was reading martine prechtel's um grief and praise and you know i'm just shipwrecked you know <laughs> and i really feel that this project that what i'm sharing is an expression of grief and praise and you know we haven't even gotten to more parts of the story but i uh, there's something very opening and meaningful for me about sharing it as I'm writing it instead of writing it all and then sharing it once it's done. And I really appreciate your comments. Um, there's something about this share that, you know, obviously is vulnerable. And so whenever I've received any feedback about it, it does really touch me. So you can DM me if you want to share anything it's Sabrina Monarch, and that is my only account on Instagram, that and Magic of the Spheres, Sabrina Monarch um, on Instagram, which is linked in the notes. And um, yeah, I'm just having like a, honestly, an experience of like soul retrieval from writing this. And it's really interesting. Um, in Grief and Praise, Martine Prechtel talks about how we you know, don't really grieve well as a culture. 
um, the uber, the overculture, and that part of why we don't grieve well is because we're not sure if we're going to be received in a dignified way when we grieve, that what if people just pity us or think that something is wrong with us or think, you know, that they need to help us or save us, you know, as opposed to just being with it. And he talked about a culture where it was normal for people to be grieving in the streets in public and even people who were like, you know, like honorable people in society could be found, you know, at their point in time when it was their time to grieve, just grieving in the street. And when I think about sharing this work and sharing it um, on the podcast, it's not really behind a pay gate. There's nothing, you know, it, the gates are there that need to be there, but it's not excessively like hidden. I feel like it is in the spirit of just leaning into life, not holding back. And I think that is changing my life. So thank you for witnessing it. And thank you for connecting. Thank you for the depth within you that resonates with the depth that I experience in my life. And I think at times I've had shame about wishing that I was more chill. And I feel this project is in some sense a reclamation of my inner experience and the operatic, intense Moon-Pluto opposition quality of it. Anyways, I have a few more chapters kind of on deck right now in terms of them having been outlined and I'll be writing them and recording them soon. 